This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in wherever you are around the world and indeed around the UK. Um, I don't know why I'm doing it in a silly voice. I just felt like it. When we were testing the levels, I did it in a silly voice. I was thinking as I was cycling to the wonderful Podmasters studio that one of my heroes was uh, is uh, Peter Sellers and those voices. Yeah, anyway. I'm sorry, I'm going crazy. Anyway, welcome. Uh, Thank you all so much for tuning in. We have got, as ever, a heck of a lot to cram in in our time together. If it's okay with you, uh, last week, for those of you who weren't around for some reason, of course, the joy of podcasts is you can still pick it up. I reflected on the challenges facing Rishi Sunak in the year ahead. I'm going to do the same with uh, Keir Starmer today. Before that, a few notices, and uh, then we're off God. The questions are amazing and, and trigger so many urgent themes. Obviously, some of you responding to my reflections on Sunak, the state of the NHS, some stuff about uh, Keir Starmer, a whole range of different things, and, and also kind of rich themes. Um, I, I don't know whether we're going to have time to get through them all, so I won't uh, preview them. When I say themes, you know, broader themes, not reflecting the current emergency in the UK, like um, whether politicians still feel a sense of humiliation. Very interesting question when, you know, things go terribly wrong as a result of what they say and do. A couple of notices, live shows in March and April have been uh, fixed up. March the 23rd, I think it is, at King's Place first live show of uh, the year. Who knows where we'll be and what the themes we'll explore deeply that evening will be, uh, but we will know nearer the time. That applies also. I'm going up to the uh, Witham Art Centre, get lots of emails um, saying, you know, will you come do more stuff in the north of England, northeast? Yeah, that's the plan. But a friend of mine is involved with the Witham Art Centre, so I'm going there uh, on April the 1st. So please drive miles to get there. Um, And then 
the old market theatre in Brighton, the rope tackle in uh, Shoreham, and say hopefully uh, later in the year or early next, kind of tour is being... I, I'd kind of fix these things myself, but there's a, there might be a tour. But anyway, I, I, I don't want to talk about that until it's all sorted. And thank you for those who subscribe to Patreon. There'll be a call out of some of the subscribers at the end. Uh, and uh, you will have this week the first of a new series on troublemakers. And it's going to begin with uh, Tony Benn. Uh, and there will be many to come, including, incidentally, Prince Harry who, when you get uh, an insurrectionary figure within the establishment, especially the royal family, there will be consequences. Look at Nigel Farage um, and uh, quite a, a couple of the Tory Eurosceptic MPs um, who have opted to be troublemakers rather than going straight for a ministerial role. And uh, Enoch Powell, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, fascinating arc. You can see I'm really excited by this series of The Troublemakers because um, I've always had a sneaking regard for The Troublemakers. It's based on a series that A.J.P. Taylor, the historian, did. And he was a troublemaker and liked troublemakers. Anyway, thank you for subscribing. And if you subscribe now, you've got a glorious back catalogue of uh, bonus podcasts on cinematic, misty, eerie general elections which had all kinds of consequences not necessarily the obvious ones and a whole range of other things as well so now Keir Starmer uh, and then over to your questions his speech uh, at the end of last week and an interview he gave to Sophie Ridge on Sunday uh, provides uh, some insights into his thinking as he goes into what will be a defining year for him, the last full year before a general election, after which things are largely, though not wholly, cast in stone as you move towards the election campaign. One of the phrases that was kind of extracted and analysed was Starmer's seizing of the phrase take back control. Some commentators thought it a gimmick. Others uh, thought it was clever. Both those kind of are slightly ominous. If it's not a gimmick and something, you know, someone, someone in his office said, why don't we take the take back control slogan? That will appeal to the Red Bull. If it's as shallow as that, forget it. But I've been arguing since 2016, actually, uh, and it's one of the many ironies of this period of conservative rule, that the language they've used is much closer to a left of centre language and that they would never be able to deliver policies that relate to that language because their ideological instincts just don't match it. And uh, take back control is one such example. I mean, the EU was not really in control of very much at all and didn't disempower people, but uh, they felt it did and the phrase was very potent. But take back control implies uh, a respect for agencies. I mean, who, which agencies are going to empower those who feel disempowered? And that's why I've always thought Labour should lift that slogan. So I'm, I think Starmer was smart to lift it. 
Um, but it's got to be deadly serious uh, and not just a gimmick to say, look, you know, uh, you Brexiteers who like take back control, I'm saying it now. If, if it's like that, it won't work. But if it is about delving deep about why so many in Britain at the moment feel disempowered, and incidentally, not just red wall voters, but people across the country who worry about tripping up and needing to go to a, I mean, I'm not using that as a metaphor, you know, needing A&E services, you could be rich and needing A&E services, not be able to get anywhere. Traveling is almost impossible in this uh, apparently relatively wealthy country. Things aren't working. And when things don't work, people feel disempowered. But for Keir Starmer, it's got to mean more than de devolution for lots of reasons. Every opposition party uh, advocates devolution. Ed Miliband, when he was Labour leader, he gave the Hugo Young lecture at The Guardian. And there he described devolution as his big idea. You know, it, and, and the so-called Cameron project was based on forms of uh, devolution. Uh, in opposition, it's the easiest framing. We will give power away. And uh, you can see why Keir Starmer has seized on this theme from an electoral point of view. Again, in their obsession with the Red Wall, uh, the December 2019 election was partly a juxtaposition, the Westminster elite versus the people, with the Westminster elite trying to stop the people's will on Brexit. And so Starmer has also lifted that juxtaposition and said he doesn't think Westminster works and wants to move power closer to the people. Now, I think he is absolutely sincere in that, but many opposition leaders have been sincere in that. And those that have won have found it all much more complicated when they govern. To give one example, when you uh, empower local councils, the money is often provided centrally by the Treasury. And the Treasury wants to make sure that money is being spent wisely. It's this great tension between the centre and the local. And so devolution is not quite as straightforward as uh, it might seem. Uh, but I am a passionate believer, as I've said here many times, on uh, uh, one form of devolution, which has really delivered. And that's the model of the mayor of London, uh, transport for London. Uh, the mayor is accountable uh, for transport. If transport is poor, he or she, it's always been a he so far, will be kicked out. And transport for London, you can bring in some of the best people from around the world to run the services. Now, give Andy Burnham, give others more power over transport. They should then get in the best people uh, available to sort it out. Uh, but that brings in other areas Ownership, the ownership model pursued really since the early 1980s, in many cases, though not all, isn't working. People feel disempowered, for example, when they go to a railway station with no idea whether a train's going to arrive or not. Um, that's when the strikes aren't happening. What can they do? Who can they punish? Not the elected politician, because they are theoretically, anyway, not responsible. But they, you know, what do you do with a train company? They've got a contract. Um, so these models aren't working. 
Uh, so taking back control can mean all sorts of things and should do. It needs to be a big idea uh, and, uh, and going beyond uh, a kind of what will inevitably be, in the end, limited uh, devolution. But it's a good phrase. It's one of the ironies of this period where there has been a conservative rule to the right of Thatcher quite a lot of the time, uh, combined at other times with a sort of form of English nationalism, that left of centre phrases, left uh, levelling up, take back control, and reconnecting the people who've been left behind. Uh, I think all these phrases Keir Starmer could deploy. Uh, and that doesn't mean he's accepting Brexit has worked. It's almost the opposite. He's saying Brexit has failed to uh, deliver on term, in terms of people taking back control and feeling more empowered and that he or a Labour government will do it through other means. So it's potentially a good thing to do, uh, to use this slogan and turn it into uh, a part of a programme of a future Labour government. Now, the bigger picture, as briefed to the newspapers and so on, was uh, new Labour-style reassurance, reassurance, reassurance. They're not going to spend money and so on. They're passionate believers in reform. And as discussed uh, in a podcast a few weeks ago, um, that word reform itself is enough to delight Westminster lobby correspondents and columnists, both Tory columnists and the limited range of non-Tory columnists. They hear, oh, uh, Kistama backs reform, that shows he's on the centre ground. You know, imprecise cliches emerge. Now, I understand why at this point they are following the new Labour path in terms of public spending. We've talked about this on the podcast many times as well. It is almost impossible for Labour in opposition to win a debate on tax and spend, though not wholly impossible. They didn't try and do so in 1997. They accepted Tory spending limits and they pledged not to put up income tax. Um, but on the rare occasion when Labour had won other than 97, they were bolder in terms of their ambition for investment and tax. That was 64 and 74. Um, and apart from that, they lose elections with their eyes closed or open. And so it's not clear that the new Labour route is, is the only one. Now, interestingly, in almost muttering it under his breath during the speech, Keir Starmer says, uh, of course, it, these services need investment, referring to the NHS, but then moved on to the phrase which he wanted to paint in bold. But don't fool yourself that, you know, you can spend your way into big government. We're not going to do that. Now, that phrase, big government, all the focus groups that stifle uh, thinking in the Labour Party, well, voters don't like big government and all the rest of it, reassure those voters that, that you don't stand for big government because it sounds like big brother and all this kind of thing. But as I say, under his breath, he said, of course, it needs investment. He knows that. His wife works in the NHS. He's, he's much more closely connected to the crisis than old uh, uh, Sunak um, is. So, of course, they know it is about that. And when they talk about renewal of public services, it's a good word. 
they know renewal will involve investment. Of course, it will also involve reform. We've analysed on this podcast and had many discussions and debates amongst the cooperative about the best ways of reform, but no one is arguing for the status quo. How can they? But the nature of the reform is the key. And on this, it's really interesting. It, uh, you know, these, again, the Westminster Correspondent briefing from Keir's office to, uh, you know, the Times staff at Westminster. Oh, yeah, we're, we're in reform. And, of course, and that means the private sector. And, oh, brilliant. They, they've bought Tony Blair's reforms. Oh, fantastic. And, you know, headlines, Starmer backs reform and everything. But if you listen carefully, what they are saying on that so far is um, they will use the private sector to meet the insane demand at the moment that the NHS cannot reach after the pandemic and 12 years of uh, austerity economics. That, to me, is wholly sensible. We're in an emergency. You use every means available. But other than that, I can't quite see what their thinking is on that. Um, uh, I noticed in the Sophie Ridge interview, uh, Keir Starmer said, again, almost under his breath, some of the outsourcing in the NHS hasn't worked. And I, I know that, that he believes that. So does Rachel Reeves. Uh, some of it has been expensive and inefficient and involved endless mediating agencies and caused a lack of accountability and hasn't worked. And yet reform often means uh, that, actually. So the other things, of course, you've got to explore, as Wes Streeting has, the role of the GP, whether the pharmacist can do more. Uh, we've, on this podcast, explored co-payments. Politically impossible, but I noticed Ken Clark saying that's one way of uh, addressing the resource issue, which is part of it. But the fundamental issue is labour shortages. It's a labour-intensive uh, industry, the NHS. And I noticed Andy Haldane, who had worked with Michael Gove on Leavening Up and was from the Bank of England, saying the other day on the Laura Koonsberg show, this is the fundamental problem. Labour shortage, because from uh, frosty frost Brexit, the end of free movement and uh, the pandemic a bit. Um, hard to blame Putin for labour shortages. But that costs money, you know, to recruit more. At the moment, Labour are doing the new Labour thing of um, having a tiny spending pledge on the NHS raised through a popular tax, a tax on non-DOMs, very new Labour. And that's it. But I wonder whether they're fighting the wrong battles on this. I only wonder because I know that you, the BBC on this is quite an interesting barometer. And until recently, all the questioning has been, as it was in 97 and 92 and 87, you will have a black hole if you don't do this and all the kind of fantasy public spending. We've talked about that. But I notice now, such as the scale of the crisis in the NHS. So after Keir Starmer's speech, Lisa and Andy did the world at one. And the whole thrust of the questioning was, but you're, you know, Germany and France spend far more on their health services. They invest more, much more than you're proposing to do. And I wonder whether the scale of the whole thing means that actually they risk labour falling into the opposite trap of not aiming big enough. Now, what Gordon Brown will have told Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer is that in government, you can do more. 
uh, and that to promise too much in opposition. Uh, voters see it as a threat when it's Labour doing it rather than a promise. Um, but there's more space in government. But they have to be really careful, Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves, that they don't talk themselves into incarceration in government, um, assuming they pass all the barriers en route to the general election. Uh, they are inheriting a crisis much bigger than Blair and Brown in '97. Uh, where the economy was growing and had been growing for some time. Um, and although public services were on their knees, they weren't in the state of fractured crisis, uh, fragmented crisis that they are in now. And there weren't the same uh, levels of industrial turmoil. I mean, Labour in 97 didn't address the uh, investment crisis in the NHS until the second term. Now, Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves, wisely are talking about a 10-year plan for renewal. If they wait until their second term to address the current crisis of resources, they won't get a second term. It's much bigger as an issue. And there's more space, I sense, for them to be bolder now than Blair and Brown felt they could in 97. The 92 election shaped new Labour when Labour lost, uh, being absolutely honest with their alternative budget, who would pay more taxes. Of course, the vast majority were going to benefit, but it was presented as a, a tax whammy, a double tax whammy and so on. And they lost. And in 97, there was still a sense that Thatcher had triumphed ideologically. Of course, she had been booted out of power by then, but that, that she... that. All the privatizations were a triumph, uh, that her economic policies had led to the growth that shaped the 97 election and so on. That is emphatically not the case now, uh, that the austerity economic policies, the English nationalism that produced Brexit and so on, the um, ownership issues that allow private water companies to chuck sewage into the sea, the train companies, uh, the network rail, who's in charge of the railways question, and so on. It, all the assumptions of 97 are being challenged or have been challenged by these past 12 years. So there is more space for uh, boldness uh, for Keir Starman than he's shown so far. I was on Aisha Hazarika's show on uh, Saturday on Times Radio, and she uh, she came up with quite a good phrase, Britain's broken, let's fix it. It, it, it. Nothing is working. And people want a sense that a change of government will not just mean, you know, a few quid here and there, and, you know, that, that they want to a sense that there are big figures ready to meet the scale of the challenges, which are much greater than 97. And I also think countries kind of change and the mood of a country changes. And when you think about this uh, country has, you know, has gone through the global financial crash, Brexit, the global pandemic, the rise of nationalism, it's you've got to kind of have a. I know the media is the same as it was in '97, and that is a real issue because the media mediates. No one except for us lot watches politics in the raw, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I think it calls for real bigness, more than we have had so far. 
and uh, the over-dependence on the sort of advice from Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Peter Mandelson, of course they should be listened to, they're winners. And the briefings that still carry on that Keir Starmer is heir to Blair, I think these are misjudgments. Um, certainly the briefings. that Whenever Keir Starmer makes a speech, someone in his office briefs, this shows he's heir to Blair. Now they do it because he's a winner, because some of in his office are obsessed with Tony Blair and they want to show it's not Corbyn and to show it's not Corbyn, if you're Blair, you're certainly not Corbyn. Blair, a winner and so on. But all winners in British politics have been wholly distinct, not framed by a predecessor in any case. Uh, you know, think of Wilson, Thatcher, Blair, all big, authentic figures, deeply flawed, but absolutely themselves and distinct. And Keir Starmer is a distinct and interesting figure. He's not boring. Here is someone who rose to the top of the legal profession, DPP, has run a big department uh, and chose to go into Labour politics at a point when Labour were far from flourishing, chose to stay in the Corbyn shadow cabinet. Uh, he's been condemned in some quarters from that, but it's an interesting call. Then wins in the darkest depths and basically in the as the pandemic erupted, darkest depths. So, so he, he's interesting of himself. Loves football genuinely. Doesn't have to pretend to. Loves music. I mean, she doesn't mention his family, although he does mention that his wife's a nurse uh, only about every ten seconds. But these absolutely root him in a distinct way. And yet his team, oh, yeah, this shows he's like Blair or he's following Blair and so on. And the other thing he needs to be careful about is the the nature of that advice. I mean, Gordon Brown was commissioned to do something very specific and he's done it. And uh, a lot of it is uh, thought through and radical and doesn't cost money. So not surprising there'll be a focus on, on some of that. It's very interesting. I read an article by Peter Mandelson. I thought it would be the usual kind of slightly generalised stuff about uh, voters need reassuring, who has won elections, Blair, 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 then loss, 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 loss. But actually it was more precise than that in ways that uh, I think a lot of us would agree with. So, for example, he said the part of the issue with the NHS is um, social care. You have to have a social care system so the hospitals do not become crammed with people because there is a shortage of uh, social care uh, facilities in Britain. Absolutely right. But what was missing is how you pay for that and how you make that case in opposition. And Gordon Brown used to complain sometimes about uh, Tony Blair, that he used to go, come, this was when they were in government, he used to come back and say to Ed Balls and Ed Miliband at the Treasury, he said, just had a, a meeting with Tony, he wants me to cut taxes and put up spending. And of course, famously, when Tony Blair rightly committed to uh, Britain uh, reaching the EU average in terms of spending on the NHS, he didn't say how that was going to be done. And that was one of the many reasons why Brown was apoplectic. Uh, Brown had to do the how. And so it's quite easy for these people to sort of loftily advise, we know how to win and so on. Yeah, and here's one example. There is an issue with social care. How? How is the money to be raised? And reform, 
It's a word that spell binds, uh, casts a spell over certain uh, columnists and political correspondents. But what does it really mean in detail? How do you get the balance right between an efficient centre and uh, more power locally, whether it's in hospitals uh, or anything else. So these are some of the challenges for Keir Starmer in the year ahead. Uh, And he's got space. He's 20 points ahead in the polls. Now, how strong that lead is uh, will be tested in the coming months. We've got a question about momentum in polls coming up any second. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's a huge year for him. And in a way, it's it, it it's more challenging. Uh, well, it's hard. To, I mean, Sunak's got a nightmare uh, on his hands, um, and in the context of twelve years of conservative rule, and so far he doesn't seem capable of rising to it. Uh, in his case, I mean, Keir Starmer is cautious because of the whole tax and spend constraint in British politics uh, and the British media. Sunak is really interesting. I, I think. It's not, he's obviously a decent bloke, you know, but he has lived a very cocooned life. Um, Winchester, Oxford, Goldman Sachs, hanging around with fellow high earners at Goldman Sachs, um, getting into politics at Richmond, a relatively affluent seat in North Yorkshire, uh, famously married into huge wealth. And it's quite hard for someone like that, I think, to recognise the country he's in charge of. Cameron struggled, though not as wealthy. Uh, when he held that referendum, he thought he would win. You know, people were, would happily t- follow his advice and that of George Osborne, you know, in spite of the austerity measures, the, the extent of which I don't think he recognised the impact on communities. I don't think he fully knew the country he was leading. And I don't think Sunak does. I think Starmer does. He's absolutely rooted and connected. But he's got some big calls to make in the coming year. And I hope he widens the range of voices he listens to as he navigates towards the next general election. Well, there we are. We've done Sunak and uh, Starmer, haven't we, uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, And now I think, if it's okay with all of you, let's go to your questions. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And just a reminder, uh, the email address is steverick14 at iCloud.com. Now, I've copied out tons of questions. We won't have time uh, to go through them all. But I thought as, as we were reflecting on Keir Starmer, we will begin with uh, Stuart Grant. Now, Stuart is one of our barometer figures in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. He voted Tory, but is now a disillusioned Tory and wants to have reasons to switch to Labour. So I've asked him to keep us all informed 
as as to his uh, thinking, because if Labour gets Stuart, I think it will be a sign that they're on course to win. He he also voted Brexit, and so all you know the summary of Stuart's latest email is that they're not there yet. Labour, he says. Uh, it's a lack of trust that's my main problem with Keir Starmer, based purely on one issue, but it cut very deep with me. My vote was hard fought uh, for, yet Keir, uh, Keir Starmer was willing to cast it aside after the 2016 referendum and have a people's vote. This isn't about the rights and wrongs of Brexit, but trust. And if he feels he needs people like me, uh, then this is something that he needs to address head-on at some point before the campaign. There are issues, uh, you know, Kissam's going to be asked constantly about his pledges made in the leadership contest, nearly all of which he has reneged on. And obviously he has a past with Brexit which will not be purged because the Tories and their newspapers will make sure it's not. So in a way, maybe a big speech on the topic, he's done one big speech, uh, where he hinted at small incremental ways in which Britain could still have a relationship with Europe. Um, but he probably need, does need to do more. Stuart wants to hear more about his thinking and how it changed and so on. He goes on to say, My sense is that whilst most will agree that the Tories have been utterly incompetent, there's still no great enthusiasm for Starmer and Labour from right-leaning Brexit-supporting voters. And therefore, whilst at this stage it looks very much likely that a Labour majority at the next election will happen, I think Labour's current huge lead could be quite fragile. Yeah, well, thank you for keeping us informed of your thinking. He calls himself Stuart Undecided of Berkhamstead. So this is our little focus group. We've got others. Denise Willier's mother. I think is part of our rock and roll politics focus group. Denise, let us know what your mother's latest thinking is. Anyway, uh, Stuart's question, what, if any influence, do you think momentum, small m, could play over the next 18 months or so? If Labour's lead is, say, 10% this time next year, that's still a healthy lead, but roughly half what it is now. Could a sense of the plucky underdog Sunak, okay, plucky millionaire underdog Sunak, fighting back and closing the gap become part of a self-fulfilling narrative. And Stuart concludes, fascinating times, Steve. I, I agree with Stuart. I think these are really fascinating times. We're not going to have a Liz Truss drama, thank God, which was just in an appalling way, utterly compelling. I couldn't think of anything else. I bet you were all in the same mental state. We're not going to have that kind of drama. But in a way, this is deeper and, and more interesting. And I think you make a good point, Stuart. Momentum is all in uh, politics. And you are right to say, if Labour are 10% ahead at the end of the year, that's still a pretty big lead. And given where they were in 2019, miraculous stuff. However, it would have been halved uh, from now. And I think uh, this is, again, one of the challenges for Keir Starmer. He needs uh, to keep this energy and momentum up and in, indeed to accelerate and intensify it in the year ahead. Uh, if there is a sense that Sunak is catching up, it feeds on itself. So momentum is all, Stuart. OK, let's um, now move on to Dorothy Aitken. And Dorothy writes... 
I realise Sunak is probably trying to present the acceptable face of conservatism, at least one that quietens the markets. But what appalls me is what many members of that august body, uh, the Conservative Party, want Boris Johnson to return. Have you read all the columns about how Boris Johnson uh, might return as Tory leader by the time of the election? Dorothy says, on what level is Boris Johnson acceptable? He lies and cheats and, as a public figure, completely reprehensible. But some in the Tory party want him back. It's startling that Sunak hasn't presented a plan to deal with the present crises. However, I hope that in your next podcast you might give your views on what I was reading about Keir Starmer's vision for a Labour government. In The Guardian, Michael Jacobs, who used to work for Gordon Brown, set out aspects of the vision of Starmer and Reeves, which includes a definite fiscal stance of borrowing only for investment, establishing a new publicly owned energy company, a 10-year energy efficient program which would create jobs and apprenticeships, along with Gordon Brown's constitutional reforms, economic powers and budgets to drive economic development across the country, and producing a package of workers' rights and protections and an industrial strategy. To me, this uh, does present a definite plan. Uh, Yeah, and I'm pleased you've included that, Dorothy, because in my overview, I didn't go into some of these details. There are some policies which uh, meet the scale of the challenge in Labour's repertoire. But they need to be, all of them make sense. Everything add up together. So the bigness does need to extend to other issues which I was talking about as well. But yeah, I read that piece. Michael Jacobs in this piece argued actually Keir Starmer is not just a kind of new Labour echo from 95, uh, but has uh, policies that are at this stage of the comparison more daring. And he does. So thank you for saying that. In in terms of Sunak's thing, it's quite clever, his five, five pledges, but perhaps too clever in that some of them were going to be so obviously meetable <laughs> that um, people might have seen through them. He said, he said this, is, you know, this is the end of being tricksy while being tricksy. But I'm told that um, they're going down quite well in some of the Labour focus groups. Oh, God, can you imagine the panic? That's going, to, oh, my God, the five pledges, you know. And, of course, that's another thing Keir Starmer's going to lift, to have uh, five pledges. Uh, fine, but be careful not to be an echo from a period of time which is uh, like ancient history compared with the build-up to this coming election. Remember the Aisha thing. Britain's broken. We're going to fix it. It's got to be bigger. I think I mentioned to you before that when I was at the launch of the 97 Labour manifesto, Tony Blair at his mesmerising best. But I was sitting next to Evan Davis, who said to me, looking at the very cautious incremental policy changes being proposed, uh, it was like, you know, Britain was this run-down mansion and Labour was proposing to change the ashtrays. It can't be like that now. Now, New Labour did some very clever things in those pledges. I was looking at them the other day. And, for example, their tiny pledge on the NHS was uh, included the words, as a first step, we plan to do this, uh, implying there would be more to come. But they couldn't say that in an election because they would be accused of having hidden tax bombshells and stuff. As a first step, 
But as I say, the scale of the crisis is much deeper now. And and uh, there are limits to the lessons that can be learnt from that period. Thank you very much, uh, Dorothy. Now, Plymouth, uh, we've got so many questions. I'm gonna, uh, Michael uh, Freeman has written saying, really enjoying the podcast. Your latest podcast on Sunak, this is a reference to last week's one, and the comparison with Cameron touched on the importance of presentation in politics. This got me thinking about whether the mix of the importance of policy versus performance in politics has changed over the last decades. My anecdotal uh, hunch is that it has changed markedly. Uh, the earliest elections I have any memory of are the two in 1974. My recollection is that it made for boring television, the early morning press conferences, etc. But it was a serious policy debate. Uh, now, maybe performance matters more than the serious policy debate. And inevitably, uh, Michael uh, mentions Boris Johnson. I've got a different view, Michael. I think you cannot, both are vital. Politics is not a sort of academic exercise. Uh, Performance does matter. You have to explain why you are saying and proposing what it is that you are proposing. And that explanation has to grip people. And that is a performance art. But of course, the policies uh, matter more in the end because they are the things that touch on all our lives and the ideas that arise from the policies. So that's another thing about the Keir Starmer speech. He's got this clever phrase, let's have an end to uh, sticking plaster politics where, you know, Tory government said, ah, oh my God, that's gone wrong. We'll stick that on. And, you know, uh, however, what that avoids is saying, why do they need these sticking plasters? Why has everything gone so badly wrong that they have to respond on a day-to-day basis to crises erupting in every corner of the country? And there you come to a battle of ideas and values that brought about those policies and why Labour would be different. And that matters. Uh, But so, of course, does the policy detail. By the way, there were many performers in the 70s, Michael, more than there are now, sadly. Uh, I wish there were more. I want more performers. But yeah. Okay. Now, Gareth Jones, he was the one who raised this term humiliation, saying perhaps in the old days when there were unwritten rules of conduct for politicians, maybe there was a real horror about being humiliated. But have the likes of Trump and Johnson taught us that if you choose not to be humiliated, then it doesn't actually matter and you can get on with doing what you like. Is Liz Truss humiliated or is she just getting on with fighting her ideas and uh, position? Are politicians these days single-minded enough that being shamed by their Westminster peers isn't something they're bothered by? Um, Yeah, isn't it interesting? Because certainly uh, in the past, there was a real neurotic dimension to politics. You know, Harold Wilson was deeply uh, paranoid and sensitive about newspapers. John Major, his aides hid newspapers because he got so worked up and angry. Um, And then you do have someone like Johnson who seems to just not be bothered. Uh, Oh, you know, he's breaking the law. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. And just gets on with it. Uh, People resigned from his number 10, including close allies. um, And he just carried on. Um, But he, he was a bit freakish. 
And uh, Liz Truss is another, it's very interesting, actually, because you don't get the sense that she feels humiliated. I think she has rationalised that her revolutionary ardour, the ground should have been prepared more, but everything that she said and did was basically right. And so you've got in the Tory party, you know, these two people, figures who don't feel humiliated, Truss and Johnson hovering in very different ways. It's become a very difficult party to lead. I think a more difficult party to lead than the Labour Party, where there's a lot of talk, you know, about the so-called hard left and all this kind of thing. Well, they just gave up power, you know, without even trying to shore up their position after the December 2019 election. and basically handed it over and can't really say or do very much because, you know, Keir Starmer has become so commanding for now. An opinion poll lead gives a leader considerable authority, uh, but he's presiding over a parliamentary party which is pretty willing to be led at the moment. And that isn't the case with Sunak's um, Tory party. Should we uh, just do one more because time is marching on? Keith from Finchley. Is there any hope that the publication of the book Spare, that's uh, Harry's book, will draw much needed attention to the acts of British troops in many parts of the world? And of course, in Northern Ireland, well, Keith Finchley is obviously a, a devout royalist following this uh, Harry thing closely. I, I just want to say something about the Harry thing. Did any of you watch the interview that Tom Bradby did? It was, I found it gripping, and I'm not interested in the royal family and uh, recognise that uh, the position of uh, Harry is a symptom of a an institution that is absurd. Um, this family having to act out these roles and some of them finding it utterly stifling but still do it, but he can't. And he is, as I said at the beginning when talking about Patreon, he is the um, insurrectionary figure um, and it's it's dangerous for them. Now, I haven't read the book. I'm told what he said about uh, Afghanistan and this thing, oh, he killed uh, 15 Taliban members or something. When you read it in context, looks less like a sort of, oh, look at me, aren't I macho and all the rest of it. I, I don't know. I don't know. When you deploy troops, uh, they're going to go depending on the context, and, and kill people. Maybe you've read the book, Keith of Finchley. Um, I, I haven't. I'm still not going to read the book. Um, but I do think it's very interesting when you have such a resolute rebel. And by the way, I think it's quite interesting in terms of the uh, newspapers because after all the stuff about phone hacking and Leveson, uh, some of them still regard freedom of the press, the freedom to destroy who they want in public life. If they want to target someone, they just go for them. Most people are so scared, they just have to accept it. It's very hard to take these bullies on. Uh, he is, uh, for whatever, I don't know what his motives are, but he is. I think they begin with the mother and the way, the, you know, she was pursued by the paparazzi and so on, and then his own experiences. But it is a very interesting dynamic going on here. Now we've got some really 
great questions about the U.S. House Speaker circus from Nick Jones, um, Benicia Kane on the impact of Thatcher on succeeding generations, whether there were equivalents in the past. Brilliant question on uh, from Noah Keat about um, those underwhelming New Year speeches, as he put it. But the art and discipline of making a speech, is it important? He thinks it is. So do I. Adam Cobb on uh, Sunak's tone deafness during Laura Koonsberg's interview with him, uh, the first interview I think he's done as Prime Minister of any length, and whether lack of experience is an issue with connecting to voters. Uh, It is, I think, Adam. It's not the only thing. Uh, John in Aberdeen about uh, he challenges the views. I said uh, we were talking about integrity in Keir Starmer, and he challenges the idea that he could have the trust issue sorted, as did Stuart earlier, um, because Nick from Edinburgh said maybe the the issue is not trust with Keir Starmer, but authenticity. But of course, trust, um, well, uh, John relates it back to um, the pledges he gave in the Labour leadership contest. Um, Yeah, so, so many here. Yeah, maybe we'll have a few question time specials. Like, do you remember we've got Jeff Strange again? Oh, I promised to read something out from Jeff last week. So I'm going to do it now quickly. Uh, It's again, uh, Starmer Sunak. He says that in his youth, he used to play trombone in his local brass band in Bolton and participate in national brass band championships. And he says they were utterly compelling at the Royal Albert Hall, even though you had to sit there and watch for hours and hours. It was still fascinating. And he says at the moment, the clash between Sunak and Starmer just does not generate in him the same fascination. Um, uh, And uh, he lacks a debate around big ideas. Well, I agree about that. But I I don't agree that this is not an interesting and important duel. Um, And by the way, it's not just about the two leaders, although increasingly, especially in British politics, which is basically presidential in culture, it will be about these two leaders. And obviously in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon and so on. I'm going to reflect on Nicola Sturgeon maybe next week or the the week after. Um, And I know uh, I'll get questions. I've got a big audience in Scotland on rock and roll politics. Um, Andrew Forsey has um, written about um, the Sunak speech and the five pledges and uh, looking at Starmer's and whether the heir to Blair strategy spans both leaders. Yeah, to some extent. Um, leaders in who fear defeat, and Keir Starmer, of course, began his leadership thinking he might not navigate electoral success, certainly at the first time of asking, and Sunak, if you're 20 points behind in the polls, you look back to election winners. And that, Tony Blair, unquestionably was. Yeah, Ian Faulkner, great thoughts about economic growth and how this is achieved. And it's so deep, that question, Ian, it needs a whole podcast on that one. Uh, Rob Watson, uh, he, uh, oh yeah, uh, he says my role in the rock and roll politics cooperatives to keep everyone calm and focused as we build up to the next election. But Rob, it's an act. I promise you, I'm I'm worked up. I'm really worked up and angry. But I think it's that's boring as a persona. So I pretend to be calm. Now he has a very interesting thing about uh, why 
Uh, we don't have more brilliant, innovative managers in Britain, which again would take up a whole podcast in terms of how you get this economy to be productive again. And it's partly about how they're brought up and so on. Uh, and um, the kind of complacency and the assumptions. And it's very interesting, Rob. I, yeah, God, to say it would take a whole a podcast. Maybe we'll do it. Remind me. Anyway, look, uh, I think we better uh, end there because we've been going for long enough for even the slowest of you to have run a 5K. By the way, you've stopped telling me what you're all doing, mostly. Not all of you. Do let me know. Some people don't like it. They just want it pure, pure politics, you know, absolutely uh, without any other hint of pleasure. Um, but I like, I like to know what's happening in our cooperative. And on the Patreon front, thank you. Call out names. Guess who the first one is? Who uh, the great uh, podmasters have given me? Dr. Rob Watson, who we've just heard from. And thank you also to Alistair McKenzie, Jonathan Priest, Stuart Mills, Mark Water Walker, and Denise Willier. I mentioned Denise earlier. Her mum is part of our focus group. Thank you all so much for subscribing. More names to be read out and say if you do subscribe as part of your 2023 resolution, uh, you, you will get a, a galaxy of bonus podcasts. And this latest series of Troublemakers begins with the fascinating, complicated figure of um tony ben uh yeah well that's it look thank you so much for listening as i say please book for the live shows because then we can all get together and really make sense of it all and have a, a great week uh there'll be many twists and turns this week so i think we better get together again next week to make sense of it all in the meantime please subscribe if you don't because then you get it automatically and if you could leave a review I think it was Stuart who wrote that part of his New Year's resolution was to leave a review. Uh, so only do it if it's good. And then it kind of spreads the word. And, you know, you've just got to keep going. Um, thank you. Have a good week. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>